Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the first podcast that takes you behind the scenes in detail of the business models that drive venture capital firms. I'm your host, Samir Kajni, and our guest today is Avedon Ross, founding partner of Root Ventures, a deep tech seed firm based in San Francisco. Like many other guests on the show, Avedon took a non-traditional route into venture capital. As prior to starting the firm, he previously served as CTO at a $30 billion private equity firm, was a host of a pilot TV show on the Food Network, and even co-authored a book outlining the best coffee shops in the world. On the show, Avedon provides his keys on building a perfect team, why their portfolio construction is different than most seed funds, and how he thinks about hard tech and investing. Now, without any further delay, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Avedon, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. One thing I've noticed about a lot of the guests that have been on is that they take a nonlinear route to venture. You in particular, a very unique case. You were a CTO at a $30 billion private equity fund. You were a host on the Food Network, and you built a fire-breathing 60-second pizza oven. And then you spent eight months on the road going to different coffee houses and eventually you know, writing a book on coffee. And then you went into venture. How did that actually happen, and why did you start a venture firm back in 2013? Well, when you put it that way, it sounds totally ridiculous. But and actually, it, it, it pretty, pretty much is ridiculous. I would say that the, uh, the thing that sort of threads it all together is I'm definitely not much of a spectator. I like to build things and get my hands dirty and get active. Um, and I love building. And it all started, I mean, I was an engineer uh, by background and training, studied computer science at Columbia. I worked on voice over IP handsets fax to email gateways at a company called eFax. Uh, I worked at Excited Home actually as an intern working on the early cable modems and a lot of the network stack that was behind the scenes on, on building high-speed infrastructure. How I ended up in the private equity world uh, was a little bit sort of opportunistic. It was actually the chairman of eFax or J2 Global who started that private equity firm. And I had worked for him many, many years earlier. And he called me up and he said, we're going to be investing, but we're going to take a hands-on approach. And I believe that technology is going to be you know, a, a front and center to our investment strategy. We're going to have to buy companies that don't have technology and think about how technology moves the needle for them. And so it wasn't just you know, overseeing IT. It was really getting involved in investments and figuring out whether or not technology could drive growth for a lot of old school core economy businesses. For me, that's what opened my eyes to, to venture was that I was constantly looking for technology that could transform legacy operating businesses like, you know, everything from real estate construction to mining to agriculture. And for me, the revelation was that it required some really deep, sophisticated technology development to to move the needle. And once I started to see companies coming out of the woodwork who were focused on building technology, that could transform these industries, I realized I had to be on the other side and I had to be helping those companies get to market and use bleeding edge technology to transform those legacy businesses. <laughs> All this stuff that was like fire breathing pizza ovens and road trips of, of coffee houses was, uh, had a lot more to do with me just be doing right by my prior partners at, in the private equity firm and, and taking some time in between to really think about how I wanted to do it and what, what my next investment strategy was going to be. Going back to then 2013, Fund One, very thesis driven around, you know, what we would consider hard tech now. But the thought, you know, with those type of companies often is highly capital intensive. I think the first fund was $30 million. How did you get comfortable investing in those type of companies at the very early stages? 
when a lot of those companies, at least perception is they're going to need a lot more capital. You might be competing with larger funders that can offer more capital and resources. What was the framework that you used to get comfortable with, you know, starting off with 30 million? I mean, we, we even did one crazier, which is we were investing in those hard tech companies before we even had a $30 million fund. And that was a series of SPVs investing in companies like Particle and Plethora and Shaper Tools and Wallaby. And, it, it, and yes, capital intensity was definitely a question mark. But I think at the earliest stages, the big, the big insight we had was that the capital intensity didn't come all the way in the beginning. At the beginning, it was about a high torque movement to get out of the gate and build some really sophisticated technology that was technically risky, right? It wasn't the capital intensity that was the risk in the first 12 to 18 months. It was like, is this even possible? And that question of, is this even possible, is the question that drives us today. When we look at companies, we say, is this technically complex? Is this the technical team to do it? And then if it does succeed, does it change a large enough market? And early on, I think founders at the really, you know, at the seed and pre-seed stages aren't thinking about getting partners who are going to help them with the capital intensity of year three through 10. They're thinking about who understands the complexity of what they're working on and the strategy they should employ to get to market. So. I don't think we had much, uh, especially back then, which was, you know, the the $30 million fund really didn't even happen until uh, 2015. You know, before that, all the SPVs was really about just being a partner to these startups and demonstrating that we understand how hard it is to build things that are technically complex, both in software and in hardware and and where hardware and software meet. And it's continued continued to this day. As I look at it, and I remember our conversation early on, this was a probably the beginning of when sector-focused firms started to come you know, to market fairly rapidly, and hard tech was still very, very early. And again, you know, we talked about the capital intensity, which I just brought up, but also the level of technical risk that exists with some of these companies. What did you say to LPs that might have been concerned about the capital intensity, the level of technical risk that you were taking with these early-stage startups? And how did you position it? What we look at is we are in the business of acquiring risk. That's what we're after. There is no investment that is zero risk. And the question is, where do you fit on the risk reward scale? And our bet was that technical risk had asymmetric upside opportunities. Because if that risk was eliminated and you understood the market that was being addressed, then you could quickly look at an opportunity and say, I believe this can bring outsized venture scale returns. But the sticking point was at those earliest stages, before there were customers using a a product, before the demo worked, before there was something you could touch or feel or look at, the question is, how do you assess, is this truly possible? Or can it be built at this price? Or can it accomplish what, what people believe the machine learning model will be able to do or the computer vision system will be able to accomplish? And the basic thesis I pitched to LPs and continue to pitch to our LPs is that that technical risk is worth acquiring. And the way that you de-risk it is by finding that unique venture capitalist who's deeply technical 
and deeply interested in understanding how a big business gets created from technology. So, you know, there are plenty of amazing PhDs who can help you vet the technical complexity. But the question is, is can you build a team of people who take that first step and then take the, okay, and then if we build it, then what? And I think that's the Venn diagram overlap of, of the team we've built here at Root, is that everybody has a deep engineering background. Every single partner on the team has, you know, a professional background in engineering, an educational background in engineering, working at SpaceX, founders of, of Cruise, working at Apple for many years. So it, it, it is that, that Venn diagram overlap. And, and our LPs believe that if you're going to buy technology risk, make sure that you're backing a team that can assess that technology risk and the market upside. How does that translate and maybe move into the other side of the table on the entrepreneur? So you have a team that has a background steeped in engineering, understands how to mitigate some of that technical risk. However, what does that actually mean in practice on the product that you're providing those portfolio entrepreneurs? The number one thing is empathy. The number one thing is understanding how hard it is to deliver what it is that they're going to deliver. And the conversations we're able to have very early on come from a level of transparency and honesty of having been in those shoes. Not necessarily saying that every single person on the team has been a CEO or has been a CTO or has been a business development person at a startup, but really understanding that early complexity of how do we ship this product? How do we find our early engineering customers? Right. Because a lot of our tools end up a lot of the investments we make end up being tools that are sold to engineers. So we're able to have these conversations that put us on the other side of the table very quickly. And it's part of the reason why uh, we, we take meaningful ownership in our first check is because we don't want to be in the situation where we wrote you a small check and then we're going to watch and see from the sidelines. We don't do sidelines. We invest and then we very quickly turn ourselves into okay, we wrote a check on Friday, we show up on Monday and we say, how can we help? And the how can we help is pretty clear because we have been on the side of shipping complex product, of working on complex technical issues, and of understanding technical buyers. So it, it really just ends up being, you know, it feels more like we're an extension of the team, sort of a quiet behind the scenes help in everything from you know, Chrissy was the EPM on the iPod and the Apple Watch. So if a hardware startup needs analysis on their bomb, she's there and there's probably no one better uh, out there to do that. And if you're selling to a bunch of software engineers and you want to understand developer evangelism, Lee Edwards has, has spent his career managing and building out engineering teams on the software side. So we try to be there for product conversations and then the subsequent strategy conversations that come from understanding how complex the product is. Thanks for sharing that. And it's always interesting to hear, at least for me, the uh, type of ultimate product that is offered to portfolio founders by different firms. But shifting to something much more fundamental in nature, you hadn't taken the route of classic training within a big firm as a principal or an associate. And I'd be curious on how you thought about things like portfolio construction. I'm sure that came up a lot in the LP discussions with respect to how many companies do you have? How do you structure initial versus follow-ons? How did you come up with that framework yourself as a first-time manager? You're absolutely right. I, I, I didn't come at it with an experience having been an associate or a principal at a Santel firm. And from that perspective, I'm a bit of an outsider. Uh, but I also understood that there was a long history of venture 
and venture thought around what is portfolios? Why, why do we talk about reserves in a certain way? Why do we talk about the certain number of shots on goal you want to have or, or what's the right sized portfolio? And so before I raised our first fund, I spent a lot of time talking to people who had been around the industry for quite some time and said, I'm not going to reinvent it just because I'm new or outside or because I want to demonstrate creativity. I want to ask, why does everyone talk about reserve structures being at the level that they are? And those answers made perfect sense to me. You know, on the other hand, there were people talking about sort of new and creative methods, and I decided not to pick up some of those really creative things. Um, but for example, the SPVs that we did before Fund One was something that didn't exist. At the time, there wasn't AngelList or AngelList syndicates. I just realized that I had access to opportunities and access to capital, and I can demonstrate it. And so, you know, we were willing to be creative in some ways, but when it came down to reserve structures, we actually took a very, very aggressive approach to our, our reserves. So we are two-thirds reserved out of our fund, which is, which is more than most, but it's been really, really helpful because our entrepreneurs know we're not going to be spreading a lot of our capital amongst many, many companies. Instead, we have a more concentrated portfolio than most. And then when you do get an investment from Root Ventures, you know that Root Ventures is in your corner for several rounds, not just the initial capital and then, you know, uh, our pockets are empty. We're there to support you both through the extremely hot next round or potentially the requirement for a bridge. Because as you mentioned earlier, deep tech oftentimes takes longer to demonstrate market viability. The other side of the fence that, you know, speaks to take as much ownership as possible, increase the size of your initial checks and have a reserve strategy that approximates something closer to a one-to-one -one or even less. How do you think about that strategy and why did you decide outside of the fact that you have the ability to follow on more versus some managers that do it through SPVs and still support those portfolio companies, but in a way where they can write bigger checks, do more companies, and perhaps get a higher ownership in that initial check? Yeah, so I think it's a continual balance. I think that there are people who are out there saying lower reserves and more companies. And, and that's all fine and good uh, as long as your companies are going up and to the right. And it's very clear who your winners are and who are not. But I think the complexity is that it's hard to keep relationships with 30 portfolio companies or 40 portfolio companies to understand what's going on at each of those companies. And you're doing a disservice to that portfolio company if, you dem if you're, if you're going to say that you're available and value add and you've, you've made too many investments in your fund. The reality is you're probably kidding yourself that you know what's going on at the startup or that you're being truly helpful. And so I think that we've decided that because we knew we were, we, when we were formulating the strategy for fund one, we knew we were going to have a fund two and a fund three and a fund four. We weren't just thinking about how big each fund was going to be. We were looking forward and saying, we need to build a strategy that we execute on that we can do fund after fund after fund. And someone might say, I have no problem tracking 30 to 40 companies per fund. But when you say, well, what happens when there's 60 or 80 or after fund three, you might have 120 and there's some attrition. Yeah, that's a lot of companies to track. 
And you have to make investment decisions in later rounds. And I believe that you should be making first party decisions um, in those later rounds. And that requires having close visibility into what's happening with that company. It's a balance. I think there are people who have been very successful with less reserves. And I would say that because we have such meaningful ownership when we enter a company, we end up having to spin up SPVs for growth rounds as well. And we've been very lucky to have LPs that support those SPVs um, in late rounds. Going back to that idea of making sure your portfolio isn't so large that you can't spend time with these companies in the appropriate way, especially given how much help you are providing these deeply technical founders and using your engineering experience. But is there a sweet spot in the number of companies in your portfolio that you try to govern to? So I could tell you that I think we probably were a little bit shy of my target number in fund one. We ended up with 18 companies. And I think for a fund that size, it should have been closer to 20. Uh, But I think the number starts with two. I think it's in the low 20s. Um, I think there are funds that have scalability to do more than that, right? So if they've built resources like First Round or YC, obviously, you can do a lot more companies. And that's because you've built out your value add in something that uh, that is scalable. Those portfolios can do 40, 50, 60 companies. Anybody who's, who's trying to do 40 companies and, and really be value-add, it's, it's a tough, that's a tough hill to climb. Um, I think anything less than 20, like I said with Fund One, uh, it might be just statistically not enough shots on goal. But what we found is because we have such a concentration in enterprise and you know what I think that leads to is a much higher hit rate of follow-on and available outcomes versus being a consumer-focused fund, which is it truly is a binary investment where you either become Snapchat or TikTok or you're Yik Yak or Peach, right? And if you don't hit escape velocity, you may have accumulated 20, 30, 40 million users, but is that sufficient for you to become the next big social network? And I think with enterprise, we we have companies that are building revenue after revenue after revenue. And I think that the M&A market for those types of enterprise software companies and enterprise hardware companies who have really strong recurring revenue is going to be much better in the years to come just for a variety of reasons. Do you think the notion of smaller portfolio sizes are more germane and acceptable with sector-specific firms versus generalists? Most of the generalist firms that we see invest in an average of about 30 to 35 companies. What's your take on portfolio sizes as it relates to sector-specific firms versus generalist? Yeah, I think a generalist fund, just at the end of the day, doesn't see their value proposition as heavy-handed, right? Their value proposition, because they're not sector-focused, for them, a lot of it is selecting team and being able to provide general support. And general support is more scalable. General support is, you know, having an in-house recruiter uh, who can just place good salespeople, right? Generalist support is being able to host events that are about scaling your business. And, and I think that generalist investors, look, the reality is I, there's, a, there's an anecdote out there that everyone eventually becomes a generalist investor with enough s- success and scale, but that's history. I'm actually conflicted about whether or not we are truly specialists. When we say deep tech or hard tech, we're just saying very technically complex. And 
if anything, that's more an ability for us to say, these are the companies we won't invest in. But I think there are far more companies that we're willing to look at and willing to contemplate investing in. So I think that the idea of investing in 30 to 40 companies is really just the belief that you are picking great entrepreneurs and hoping that they're able to go ahead and be successful, which I think is totally fair. And it's a great strategy. We know a lot of people who have done very, very, very well. It's hard for them to get meaningful ownership with that many portfolio companies. But regardless, when you have a winner that's so far outsized, even your 5 to 6% ownership is sufficient to have a 3x net fund. I think for us, we've decided to focus on areas where technical complexity is the common thread amongst all of the companies in our portfolio. And with that, we end up with a more concentrated portfolio. We end up with more ownership on a per company basis. And we end up becoming a highly available resource to every single one of our startups. As a matter of fact, our net promoter score is measured on Tuesday night at 10 p.m. If you have a problem, who do you call? And our goal is that somebody at Root Ventures is on the other end of that phone call. I've heard you say that in many cases, not only are you taking the pro rata given your reserves, but you're often increasing your ownership over time. That to me would suggest that you're providing some level of value that's very clear and present. What exactly is that value add framework for you and the team? The way we look at it is it all starts at the diligence level, right? It all starts at the beginning. Obviously, everyone on our team is doing first-party technical diligence. And that technical diligence then leads us to doing market analysis, right? At the end of the day, every VC firm does team diligence. And I think that that's common. You do the reference calls, you break bread or hang out a lot on Zoom. But really, market and technology risk are, are where we shine. And it leads to a very different engagement in the first year with a company. And so what we do is on the technical diligence side, I mean, you have Chrissy doing bomb analysis. You have Lee Edwards going through GitHub repos and doing Hello Worlds and building technology on the software that he's looking to invest in. Kane is going deep into the industry and industrial automation, looking at control systems. But then on the market side, we've been very lucky to have a lot of great relationships with Fortune 500 companies and big private equity firms. So when we're looking at a new industry, we very quickly pick up the phone and call our friends at Blackstone or Carlisle or Apollo or Oak Tree. And we say, hey, we're looking at something in the maritime industry, like with Nautilus Labs, or we're looking at something in the, in the energy space, like with, with Crux or Versatile and construction. And very quickly, we're on the phone with customers talking about market appetite. If the technology works, how will this impact your underlying business? And what that then means is if we decide to make the investment and we paper the deal, first off, I think we're a very strong signal to the market that that's the level of diligence we do. And people who are, who are more market generalists get excited that a specialist like us is, is leading the deal. But even after that fact, the conversations that we're having with the entrepreneurs come at a level of deeper understanding where we really do feel a bit like a shadow team. But more importantly, we're able to go help them with conversations with customers because we now know what the market interest looks like. We're able to talk about the technology and we're able to talk about the team in a much more coherent fashion. But then we do the same with potential recruits. 
So one of the services we love offering to our entrepreneurs is the ability to help them close great candidates. Because a great executive or a great great engineering lead is very much like an investor in a company, right? Except they only get to write one check. And that one check is their blood, sweat, and tears that they're going to put into this company. And the diligence they're doing in making the decision of whether or not they're joining that company should look a lot like investor diligence. But they're not set up to do that. So they call us and ask us all the questions of what does the competitive landscape look like? Why is this technology different? What does the market want? What do the customers look like? And so we get involved in helping recruiting and closing employees. And that gives us very, very strong signal to the type of company that's being built. And then the last thing is we're able to go help make that same sort of message and appeal and essentially help grease the skids on downstream fundraising events. So we're able to talk to bigger downstream investors and share with them why artificial intelligence is going to change construction or computer vision and machine learning is going to change manufacturing. And when the time is right, we're able to bring the team forward. All that said and done, it really means that we're deeply integrated with the team in the earliest days. We're able to talk about product. We're able to talk about technology. And we're able to talk about strategy. And I think that's what makes us very special as partners to founding teams. What keeps rattling around my head as I hear you speak is the very clear message that you think of yourself as a service provider. Presumably, what that translates to is a really focused thought process when it comes to hiring people. And I'd be curious on what mental model you use to ensure somebody that comes in is complementary, they culturally align, and really add and are accretive to that service model. How do you think about that? And what tips would you suggest to emerging managers that are building out their teams? We've kind of had this um, requirement that I don't think we set out with it being a hard, hard, fast requirement, but it's essentially manifested itself that way, which is that everybody has an engineering background. But beyond that, we're looking for that team member who is also so, so hungry to learn. And they're hungry to learn outside of just engineering and technical complexity. They want to learn about industry and market and strategies and sales and recruiting and executive leadership and how companies get built. At the end of the day, they're builders. And what brought them to be engineers was the desire to create and be part of the creative process. Uh, I can give you some examples of folks on the team. Chrissy Meyer is, is a team member that joined about two years, actually probably more now, about three years ago, just as we were raising Fund 2. And Chrissy's background is, is spectacular. She studied uh, electrical engineering at Stanford, where she got her master's, and then was recruited directly into Apple, where she worked her way up to eventually becoming the uh, engineering project manager on several iPods and then the Apple Watch, the first generation Apple Watch. And if you remember, the first generation Apple Watch was sort of the a crown jewel for Apple at the time. And she was able to then from there go on to become uh, to start running hardware programs at Square. So she went from building consumer electronics to building products that were mostly B2B and then eventually uh, started a company called Pearl Automotive where she was working in the hardware space for uh, the automotive industry. We like to joke around that she's probably shipped more product than any person in the continental United States. I mean, she is responsible for so much product getting shipped. So her knowledge of supply chain, manufacturing, logistics, bill of materials analysis, 
all the, the ways that you work with China, the ways you work domestically is unparalleled. And when Pearl was shutting down, we called one of our founders, Anna Shedletsky, who's the CEO and co-founder of uh, Instrumental, which is using machine learning and computer vision to optimize manufacturing lines. And they had worked together at Apple. And we knew that a lot of the team at Pearl had worked with Anna at Apple. And we asked Anna, who is the person at Pearl that is a Root Ventures partner? And she didn't even hesitate for a second. She said Chrissy Meyer and immediately made the intro. And it was because Anna had seen how we operated. She had seen that approach of being an extension of the team, rolling up your sleeves, being continuously interested in learning more and expanding your knowledge and questioning what you already take for granted. And Chrissy has been exactly that. So Chrissy is able to show up at a meeting and the entrepreneurs are so excited for her wealth of knowledge, but she's equally excited to learn about theirs. And I think that's what makes her a very special investor. And every, every investment we do in supply chain, manufacturing, physical hardware, they all go through her. And she's been an amazing addition to the team. So I think that's, that's sort of a great example of somebody and, and how we, uh, we brought her on board. So it sounds like, you know, you have this somewhat, let's call it loose prerequisite of, you know, technical background as a must given the type of companies. But underneath that, having that level of intellectual curiosity to constantly learn new things and be complementary within the team framework was really, really important. It sounds like she came on right around the fund too, which was what back in 2018, which leads me to talking a little bit about fundraising. So everyone, you know, I talk to is like LPs and how do I find LPs and how do I scale from a fund one to fund two? I think fund two was a little over two and a half times the size of fund one. What did those fund two LPs actually look for, both the existing folks, the new folks, and what metrics were they looking at? It was so it was so recent between fundraises. Like, tell us a little bit about that. The complexity with fund one is you're going to LPs and you're saying, here's my thesis or our thesis as a team. Here is our vision. Trust us. Believe that we can do this. And I think the great thing about fund two is you now have entrepreneurs. You have entrepreneurs who can Stand up on two feet and say, I am building this company that is exactly what the root team said they were going to invest in. And I could tell you that Fund 2 fundraising was far more fun than Fund 1 fundraising because it wasn't about me walking around saying, Hey, Kane and I can do this. Because at the time it was just Kane, Shea, and I on Fund 1. Fund 2 was meet these amazing entrepreneurs we've backed. And if, and if we tell you the pitch from Fund One, or we told you the pitch from Fund One, and you decided to hold out, well, now you can see that we executed on what we said we were going to do. And how impressive is it that these type of entrepreneurs exist? Because that's what we were pitching. We were pitching the Anna Shedletskys of the world, a person who also studied, she studied mechanical engineering at Stanford, spent many years at Apple, and then decided to build a company to change the way manufacturing is done globally. Like To be able to present that entrepreneur to your prospective LPs is far more exciting, despite the fact that so many VCs love talking about their own vision. And I know this is the irony of me being on a podcast saying this, but like we love talking about 
our vision and how we want to do things. But the reality is the best sales pitch is to say, don't ask me, talk to our entrepreneurs. And I think that was the very exciting part with Fun2. And, and what made it great was that uh, we were able to talk to potential Fund2 LPs during our Fund1 deployment period. Whereas as we were leading up to raising Fund1, we knew that our audience of what prospective LPs we could talk to was going to be unique to being a first-time fund. So as you were going into Fund2, you had built these relationships over a series of years of really leading up to that second fund, some of these institutionals. Is there a particular cadence? I mean, what are some best practices between fundraises where you know somebody's not going to come into a fund one, but you know that they could be a good prospect for fund two? How often do you reach out to them? What, do you, what type of updates do you provide? What did you guys do? We're probably not the best example because when I talked to other investors about what to do, they said, oh, well, you should create like a quarterly newsletter for public consumption and build an email list and send it to all of them. It just didn't feel natural to me to do that. Instead, what we did was we invited those potential LPs to our annual meetings. And we said, this is a demonstration. It's a two-way street. We're going to show commitment to you and we're going to let you inside the inner circle to meet our entrepreneurs and meet our existing LPs. But what we expect is that you're also willing to make the trip. You're willing to fly somewhere. And I think early on, we were able to piggyback on the Upfront Ventures Summit in Los Angeles and just do our event the day before, which was great because some people said, well, it's not that much more of a commitment. I just arrived one day earlier and I'm able to do, you know, show up at the Root Ventures event. You know, the idea was the relationship, even on a fund two, at the end of the day, LPs are still making a commitment to the partners of the team. As much as we show them a great portfolio, anyone who's investing as an institution in a fund two, in a fund two or a fund three is making a three to four fund commitment in their minds. And so for them, so much of it is still about the people that they're going to be backing. And those people are going to be the GPs. Those people are going to be the partners of the firm. And so the idea of getting everyone excited with a bunch of snazzy newsletters didn't feel like the right way to engage. And instead, it was still one-on-one. We didn't cast a very wide net. We knew the folks that we wanted to talk to because we also wanted some LPs that were institutional-like in their family offices, where they were either founders of big private equity firms or successful Fortune 500 executives or leaders, and they could be not only helpful in, in terms of being a traditional LP, but also helpful in the network that they brought and the, and the vision and, and insight that they brought to a bunch of different industries that we we're going to be investing in. It's interesting that you bring up the uh, concept of inviting prospective LPs to your annual meeting. And, and I think you just did your annual meeting over the last week, uh, albeit in virtual form this year. But taking maybe a step and looking at things more globally. It's been seven years now since you started Root, which originally was, I think, Lions Well. Now you're at a point where the market's crowded. There's a lot of seed managers. Hard tech is a thing. How have you adapted your strategy? And I guess maybe even acting as a fly in the wall, what have you told your LPs on how you think the market is going to evolve on a go-forward basis and Root's place in that? Yeah, we did our, we did our annual meeting uh, just yesterday, actually. And it was a lot of fun. It's always exciting to share 
all the the exciting things that we're doing day in and day out. And I actually really enjoy preparing for the annual meeting because it's one of those times you get to stop. You're forced to stop and truly smell the roses. You stop and you look back and you say, oh my God, look at these amazing founders we've backed. Look at these amazing companies. Look at the progress they've had raising tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. It's, it's exciting. Uh, I think what we've, what we've realized is that our position in the market is in a leadership position at the seed stage. So what we mean by that is we oftentimes see the technical complexity as the thing that stops so many people from making a commitment. And everyone's excited. Well, if they can build this, of course, it will change the construction industry, the mining industry, what you, you name it. But how do we know that this is the team that can actually build this? And how do we know how hard this is? And so while there are many, many, many seed funds, there are very, very few that are going to be ready to paper terms on a deeply technical and complex startup. And our revelation is that we're uniquely positioned to lead those rounds or co-lead those rounds with very complimentary friends, and then talk to our friends who are seed and seed managers as well, who bring a lot to the table. Some of them are very good at recruiting. Some of them are very good at understanding the, the, the unit economics of the business. Some of them are just very well networked. And I think that sort of complementary skill set is one that leads us to be uh, an investor of record, either co-leading or, or leading deals, and then looking to our friends in the ecosystem who may not be deep tech focused exclusively, but might have an interest in the market this deep tech company is going after. So they might have an interest in real estate or an interest in fintech or an interest in any of these industries. And so we are not shy to paper a deal without the rest of the syndicate being identified. We get to conviction on our own, but we're happy to call in friends. And you know we're not dogmatic about our ownership. It's really dogmatic about conviction. We only make an investment when we have conviction. And it just so happens that conviction lines up with ownership most of the time. And so it leads us to a situation where we're very, very happy that there are a lot of seed funds because there are a lot of people to partner with. And a lot of those seed funds love sharing deals with us that are deeply, deeply complex and technical and saying, do you want to lead this deal? We'd love to be a co-lead with you, right? Or we'd love to participate in this deal. So we're big fans of it. The question for me is the big deep tech funds that are bigger later stage, right? The, the luxes of the world and the sparks of the world and the GVs of the world, like they love the deep tech stuff. And I always wonder, you know, how many seed deals are they going to do? And it feels like it's ebbing and flowing. And one year they say 30% of our capital will be deployed in seed. And another year they're like, we don't do seed. And then another year they say, we do 250K checks in seed. So like we get a seat at the table and like a shot on goal later. And I think it all just comes down to how brutally competitive the Series A and Series B stage is in that given quarter as to whether or not they decide to come right back down to seed and pick up a deal that's a little bit easier for them to win with their big muscles. It's something that you and I have talked about and a number of seed managers on the dynamic between seed and the traditional legacy multi-round investors. And is there competition? Is it competition? You know, where do those lines really blur? And it's going to be interesting to follow that. But I want to end with our final segment, which is our heat check round. And it's three rapid fire questions. We'll start off with your biggest career mistake and what you learned from it. 
I think the mistake I made early on in my career was getting excited about the technical complexity of a problem um, and not understanding how important it was about who my colleagues were and how much I wanted to work on that problem with them. So I, I worked on Wall Street for a short period writing high-frequency trading platforms, and I just so happened to be very enamored by the technical problem, that problem of how do you take a fire hose of data and find signal in the noise? But I cared a little bit less about the motivations of the other people around the table. And while I was excited by the challenge, they were excited exclusively by the idea of taking from others and that other people were leaving opportunity on the table. And it felt like it felt like more like a game to them and less like a challenge. Second question relates to more on the investing side. It's been seven plus years from the SPVs to the two funds. And I also love talking about anti-portfolios and you may not have a full anti-portfolio, but is there an investment that you miss that you look back on and do have some regret on? And did you learn anything from that miss? The one that burns for me is uh, Jamie Siminoff at Ring. And so I was introduced to Jamie very early on when he had built a product called DoorBot. And the great story there that is not very well documented in history is that Ring was not his first product. The first product was a terrible version of Ring called DoorBot. And I think Jamie hates that I describe it as a terrible version of it. But, but Amazon, it was like literally a one-star product on Amazon. And I was blinded by that problem. I was blinded that the initial product was so poorly received by the market and there were a bunch of technical problems with it, batteries running out, losing connectivity. I was unable to get past the technology part of it. And I was unable to see the big picture and the big entrepreneur was going to go past that early failing and build a new version of the product called Ring and end up with a billion dollar exit to Amazon. So Jamie, if you're hearing this, I'm sorry. I totally, totally should have given it a second look. Well, you're in good company. Obviously, there was a very public rejection on Shark Tank early, early on when he, when he started to ring. But final question, from an investor standpoint, are there any role models that you look at that you want to aspire toward that you really respect? Who would they be or who is it and why? I'm very lucky. Um, that the people I look up to are part of a group uh, of guys who used to go out for falafel every couple months, uh, but now with Zoom, uh, now with work from home, we're, now we do falafel Fridays where we just have a happy hour together to catch up. And these guys have have been super helpful to me. So Nabil Hyatt uh, from Spark, and and he just he sees everything so clearly. Everything is clear in his mind. In and I sit on a board with him at Particle. And he's a steady hand at all times who can synthesize really complex thoughts. Um, and his synthesis of complex thoughts, I think, is what sets him apart. And then Bilal Zaberi uh, at Lux. I mean, the, the guy has such great founder empathy. He's super technical. And he really, truly cares about the entrepreneurs he works with. And I, and I really look up to that. And, and then my boy, Samil Shaw from Haystack. I mean, the dude has his finger on the pulse of every pulse of every pulse that's out there. And he can read a person like he's a Mossad agent. I mean, the guy can have a 15-minute conversation with you and have it fully sized up, know every, everything that's going on. And I think it's like part of his writing and journalism background is he just he knows how to, how to read people, talk to people, and, and have really effective conversations. 
So I'm lucky. Falafel Ventures is a is probably a thing that has helped me personally as an investor quite a bit to to be able to hang out with guys that I really look up to like that. Well, this has been uh, it's been a lot of fun, man. I appreciate you being on the podcast, and of course, appreciate all the support over the years. It's been great working with you, and it's also been great having you work with a lot of our portfolio companies. It's a resource that I think is needed by the community. There's not a lot of transparency about the the LP GP relationships, and you're in a really unique position to have the perspective you have. And I appreciate the fact that you're sharing it as, as widely as you are. Thanks for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked, and I hope you found it to be helpful. To learn more about Avidon and Root Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.